Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Uh, I'm Samir Gill, BA in Politics and International Relations. Um, yeah, I've heard of them, and I think they make more of an impact from a PR standpoint than from an actual academic standpoint, because uh, like my mother is an academic and I know that she doesn't particularly um, think they're very serious rankings. It's for a lot of academics, I think they think that the, that the rankings are sort of politicized, not based on the correct things that they should be ranked on. In today's podcast, we explore the topic of global university rankings. Periodically, we see universities in South Africa excitedly announcing that they've been rated first in Africa or among the top 200 globally. But what do these rankings mean and how are they worked out? To discuss these matters, we welcome Phil Betty to the show. Phil Betty is the leading authority on global university performance and management with 20 years of experience working within the international higher education sector, including more than seven years as editor of the World University Rankings. Phil joined the Times Higher Education in 1996 and has served as chief reporter, news editor, deputy editor, and lately editor-at-large. He took responsibility for the World University Rankings in 2008, when there were a single annual list known as the THEQS World University Rankings, and he was responsible for their transformation into a comprehensive portfolio of data-led performance analyses under the umbrella brand of the Times Higher Education World University Rankings. Okay, a very warm welcome to our guest today, Phil Betty, who is here to talk with us about university rankings. So thank you so much for joining us, Phil. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Perhaps we can get started with just a question that I'm sure many of our listeners will have. A basic question, but an important one nevertheless. What are global university rankings and why are they important? Well, really, they've only been on the scene probably since around 2003, 2004. The Shanghai Tong University produced the first global comparison of universities back in 2003 and Times Higher Education was hot on the heels developing a ranking at the same time back in 2004. We were really responding to a government report on university business interactions and universities contribution to the economy in, in the UK which actually really called for better global comparisons of universities. There's clearly a group of universities that compete on the world stage. They're not competing nationally. They're in, a, a, in an international competition for talent, both from students and for faculty. They're publishing in world-class research journals and they're hiring one another's faculty. They're collaborating with each other. They're, they're solving world problems in terms of their research. So they emerged from a really world-class research intensive universities. So we produced our first ranking in 2004. It was very simple at that time. It was based on very simple indicators around 
research excellence, mainly driven by bibliometric analysis, analysis of research publication output. But it evolved very quickly. It became extremely popular very, very quickly, you know, reaching an audience of many, many millions across the world, influencing government decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So we built a stronger platform. We built the current rankings methodology um, in 2010, and it's gone from strength to strength. And I think what's driving this really is, A, the hunger for international comparisons at a sort of government level. And there's no question that the Times Higher Education World University rankings have become a sort of government level geopolitical indicator. They're giving a government a sense of the nation's strength in the knowledge economy, its, its, its competitiveness in terms of knowledge and innovation and skills. But they're also, of course, helping universities set their own institutional strategies. We provide all sorts of benchmarking tools and, and, and all sorts of data and analytics that help institutional leaders understand their performance relative to the best in the world and to help them look at their strategies. But probably the most important audience really today is the student. We are seeing, I think, 4.5 million students study outside their home countries today. The uh, expectations are that will continue to rise. I think the figure suggested is about 8 million in the next decade and will tool to make decisions to, to show them the, the options and opportunities for them and, and, and helping them with one of the most important decisions they'll ever make, you know, who to trust with their education. So really, they've, they've exploded really in just a decade or so. We're, we're just working on our 13th annual edition. So they've gone from nothing to a, a huge global phenomenon in just a decade or so. A, a university ranking is a system that compares universities with one another across the globe in terms of their research output and their teaching excellence. And the argument is that these are most useful for students. But as you mentioned, governments seem to put a huge amount of store in these rankings as well. So could you elaborate for us a little bit more on why governments in particular find these ranking tools to be so crucial? Yeah, well, I think, you know, having strong internationally competitive universities is fundamental to a nation's success. You know, universities drive the economy, they produce the skilled graduates that, that societies and the economy needs. They are at the forefront of technological innovation. They are researching, are working with businesses in terms of innovating, in terms of technology, in terms of product development. And of course, they're also developing paradigm shifting, new ways of, of understanding the world, which is either you know incredibly beneficial to society in general as a general public good, or actually incredibly powerful commercially. You know, curing diseases has a huge global social impact, but also it's uh, part of a, a, something that can be exploited, you know, new ideas intellectually. But most importantly, I think, you know, having great universities is a way of drawing talent to your nation. And I think if you look at the, the African context, you know, there's been a serious problem of brain drain. All the uh, talented African scholars or many of the talented African scholars are drawn outside Africa to careers in North America or Western Europe. And making sure you have strong universities, making sure you have competitive strong universities, make sure you keep hold of your talent. And that's incredibly important to the success of nations. But, you know, for some of us who don't understand the exact science of how these rankings are worked out, it can be a little kind of opaque in terms of understanding who gets to rank the universities and what particular factors they bring into account into their calculations. So could you explain to us how the different major ranking bodies differ in their approaches and perhaps share with us your views on which you think are the most appropriate or effective ways of ranking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's probably the most important thing to say is there's no correct ranking. There's no right or wrong answer here. 
Every ranking is dependent on subjective decision-making about which measures you use, which weighting that you give to the measures, uh, what aspects you value, what aspects you can actually get meaningful data on. So I think there's no perfect ranking. They all have strengths and weaknesses. I think the first of the rankings on the scene, the Shanghai ranking, is well-respected, but it's very narrow. It's restricted to very easily available data. So they look at research output, bibliometric analysis, so they analyze the citations to research papers. But they also look at really simple things like, does your university have a Nobel Prize winner? Do your scientists get published in the journal Science or the journal Nature? So it's very, very simplistic in that sense, but it's powerful in the sense it looks at research excellence across a range of metrics. Now, people value it for its transparency, but it's also very, very narrow. It doesn't really get to the heart of what universities are all about. And certainly, again, to put it in an African context, there aren't that many universities in Africa who are producing lots and lots of Nobel Prize winners. So they'll be disadvantaged there. I mean, I think that was a Chinese model of what excellence looks like, which isn't necessarily the same model across the world. You know, can we recognize the other strengths of universities, their ability to provide great teaching, their ability to give life chances to children, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a range of different types. Shanghai very narrowly focused on research. Originally, the Times Higher ranking was in partnership with a company called QS. There was the Times Higher Education QS World University Rankings. I made the decision as editor of the Times Higher Rankings to separate from QS back in 2009 because we thought their methodology was, again, too simplistic. Um, it had six indicators to produce the ranking. and It's really heavily weighted towards reputation. They do a survey of academic opinion. We felt at Times Higher Education that that was perhaps a rather too simplistic approach. They were asking scholars around the world, you know, and they also looked at research through bibliometric analysis. And having been uh, involved in the QS rankings and the Times Higher Education rankings, my personal view is the, the current Times Higher Education World University rankings are by far the most balanced and the most comprehensive of the global rankings. We actually used 13 separate performance indicators and we are looking at the full range of a university's activities. We have a a section on uh, bibliometric analysis. We analyze 50 million citations to 11 million research publications. But we also have a very good look at the teaching environment. We're looking at things like faculty-student ratio. We're looking at resources. And we also look at innovation. We look at how successful universities are in leveraging money from businesses. And we look at international outlook. We're looking at whether a world-class research university is truly global in its ability to draw in talent and to attract leading students and leading scholars around the world. So I think the THE Times Higher Education ranking is probably more, more, more comprehensive, but certainly more comprehensive and, and I think you know, much more delicately balanced than the others, which allows, I think, the user not just to look at a single overall composite score, but it allows the user to break down the scores and, and look at performance against the different, a, a wider range of activities. So as you've described it, all of these various kind of complex factors that are taken into account in order to rank universities against one another globally. A lot of the things that you mentioned, such as resources available, staff to student ratio, those would kind of automatically disadvantage universities in the global south, right? That suffer from less government support, that charge lower fees, that have smaller libraries. So are there any ways of accounting for that structural inequality in these rankings? Or is that just a reality of the playing field as we see it? I think there's a, there's a mixed picture there. I mean, we do do a lot of work to balance for uh, the state of all of the indicators where we use 
uh, financial data, we're using uh, purchasing power parity analysis. So we are adjusting all of our financial data to take account of uh, the strength of, of, of national economies relative to, the, to, to one another. So we are doing that. We do use a, a survey ourselves. It's a much more uh, rigorous survey in terms of a, a very, very clear sample. So we're making sure that we ask scholars in Africa where great work is taking place. Um, we're not just asking American or, or, or Western European scholars what's, what, who the best institutions are. So we do work hard at Times Higher Education to be as fair and as balanced as possible. But I think you're right, you know, we are looking at world-class research universities and there's no question that having lots of money, you know, having multi-billion dollar endowments like Harvard or being able to charge crazy high tuition fees like Stanford, that will serve you well. Being rich does mean you attract the best scholars, you pay the higher salaries to, to attract the best professors, you have the best facilities. So there is a there is a, 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 a problem in the sense of, of global inequality that you do need to be rich to be a, a, a super research university. One of the things we're trying to do, and we've been to Africa, we were in uh, Ghana just earlier this year, and we were in Johannesburg actually with the University of Johannesburg the year before. One of the things we're doing is working with African universities to try and understand what else we could measure. So it's clearly desirable that we measure a university's social impact, its ability to get students from non-traditional backgrounds, you know, from, from poorer backgrounds, give them a, a life-changing opportunity to get an education or get a university degree, an impact of a university on the local economy, you know, giving kids skills, allowing them to contribute to the jobs market and, and contribute economically. And the sort of social impact of universities is something we're really keen to explore but the challenge, I think, is the availability of good quality data that we can compare across nations. So one of the things we're trying to do is start to explore data at the national level. So we've always been involved in a global ranking. But can we begin to collect data at a national level that, that's a bit richer and deeper that allows us to look at the, the contributions that universities make that don't require multi-billion pound endowments? So how good is the education? How much value do they add to the student learning? And actually, one of the things we're doing in the United States at the moment is a domestic ranking, which is based on teaching and learning. And we're doing things like a, we've, we've surveyed 100,000 students in America, asking them about their engagement with their learning, how much they're stretched by their learning, how much they're intellectually challenged by their learning. We roll out globally because that's not dependent on wealth and great classrooms. It's dependent on the universities, you know, having passionate, committed teachers doing a great job. So we hope over time we can develop a much, much wider range of metrics that don't just capture the sort of old-fashioned research elite, but capture the other great and wonderful things that less celebrated, less prestigious universities do. And how long do you think it will take to evolve the, the metrics and the, the ranking system towards that more inclusive and broad and publicly-minded sense of what a university should be? Because up to this point, from my understanding, the rankings tend to really pinpoint and give preferential treatment, if you like, to those quite marketized indicators of what a good university is. So it's quite inspiring, quite optimistic to hear that all of these other factors might be taken into account. But how long do you think it'll take for those to actually become a central part of this ranking scenario? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would challenge your assertion around the marketization. I think it's obvious, and I did say, you know, the places like Stanford, their ability to charge very high tuition fees gives them a uh, an inherent advantage around the wealth and the ability to pay high salaries and the ability to uh, have fantastic facilities. But we do 
in the world rankings, you know, there are nations like Germany that do very well and they have strong government support. So I think money is very important. Having resources and having riches is very important. And that is why we do have a problem between the global north and global south and inequality. But it's not necessarily about marketization. There are systems like the Netherlands and, and Germany and the Nordic countries that have very strong universities doing outstanding research and teaching, but they're not doing it through the sort of private funding through individual tuition fees. They're actually doing it through a good solid state support, but it's still about rich and poor. So having take an exception with that point. I mean, with regards to improving and, and trying to capture some of the other great things universities do beyond, you know, superb uh, research, the issue really is the quality of the data, the availability of the data. So I think we're still some way off, but I think Times Higher Education, I, I think we can be very clear in saying we are more focused than any other ranking organization on changing, getting better, improving the type of metrics we have. We've invested very, very heavily in our data team. We have a very strong team of data analysts, data scientists, and data editors. And we are constantly looking to innovate and find different metrics. So experimentally, we've done this in the US, you know, a survey of 100,000 students. It was very, very expensive, but we think it's providing a new and very rich insight I mean, I, I can see that rolling out. We could try and roll that out across other parts of the world. When it comes to Africa, I think we need to work perhaps on some preliminary research, maybe partner with a group of universities to work out what data is available, how much universities themselves collect, because also the institution's ability to collect and manage their own data, that varies across the world what governments collect in terms of the social background of, of students and the uh, the employment and graduation rates. So I think there's a massive challenge around the quality and the comparability of data around the world. But Times Higher is, I think, more committed than anyone else to investing in this and seeing what we can do to harmonize ourselves. Those are very um, convincing, I think, arguments that you're making. But I wonder about the future of the African university in particular, because of our general scarcity of resources, particularly from public funds. You know, from the perspective of, of the rankings systems that you've outlined, what do you think it would take for African universities to be able to enter into a kind of competitive space with global universities to be achieving the same levels of quality according to the indicators that you prioritize? I mean, I think that the first thing I'd say is that I think it is absolutely appropriate that African nations do look at the global rankings and do aspire to having universities in the global rankings. There's an argument to say, oh, well, Africa has too many local challenges, too many, um, you know, on the ground problems. It shouldn't try and copy, you know, it shouldn't try and have a Harvard or an Oxford or a Cambridge. I think that attitude is wrong, actually. I think most African nations should aspire to have at least some top universities because they are key to nation building. They're absolutely essential to taking Africa and, and delivering Africa's renaissance, you know, I think paying more talent, that you're part of global conversations in terms of excellence and innovation, that you're involved in, in solving global problems that are very much Africa problems as well as world problems, you know, around climate change and, and food security and, and that sort of thing. So first of all, I think it's absolutely right that the world rankings do apply and should apply to Africa. And I think the other point I'd make is that there are some universities who are competitive. I mean, certainly South Africa, 
I think you can see Cape Town is, is in there with our top 200 in the world. WITS is a strong institution. Stellenbosch is very good in other parts of the world. I think Makareri and, and Ghana, they have strong universities. So there is hope. There are some universities that are globally competitive. But I think there is an issue, and the, the most fundamental issue comes down to, to funding. It comes down to money. And I think my sort of message, and if I, I don't want to be too patronizing and, and sort of tell a nation how they should prioritize their funding, but I would always passionately advocate to any national government that if you want to see a return on your investment, investing in your universities, giving the universities the funding they need to compete properly, to keep hold of their best talent, to bring in fresh talent from other parts of the world, to forge strong alliances. The, probably one of the most exciting prospects and one of the most promising areas for, for delivering a, the future that Africa needs is through great, strong universities, through talent development, talent acquisition, innovation, new ideas. So my sense is it's all about investment. Um, you, the, the universities will struggle. If there isn't any investment, it's probably about strategic thinking. It's about where do we put our priorities, where do we focus our energies, are there key areas of research where we can be globally competitive? I think the answer to there is yes. Are there areas of research perhaps that could be downgraded in terms of priorities? Maybe focusing on national or, or pan-African economic needs. And there's also innovative ways to deliver great teaching. You know, great teaching can be done in all sorts of new and different ways now. So bottom line, fund universities properly and nations will benefit and the funding from the taxpayer will be paid back many times over through higher skilled graduates, stronger economies, innovation, technology advancements, etc., etc. If the funding's not there, it's going to be about strategic uh, development and, uh, and, and clever use of, uh, of limited resources. I couldn't agree with you more. And as you may be aware, we're having some very passionate debates in South Africa at the moment about access to universities and about the ways in which the fees structure has denied access to many deserving students. And, and what we've seen in the midst of these debates is we've seen some conservatively positioned opinions arguing that greater access to universities will somehow compromise the quality of the education that can be offered. As you are kind of so central to the business of working out the quality of universities globally and comparing them, in your experience and from your perspective, does greater access to education compromise quality? So I think, you know, widening access shouldn't mean lowering standards. It just should mean making universities more easily to, to more easily accessible to smart, bright kids who, who are who find it more difficult to get into a university, whether there are financial or social barriers. So I think the fundamental point here is um, everybody who has the ability to benefit from a university degree should absolutely be given every bit of support to, to, to get that opportunity. And it's, it's incredibly important. Um, and that's why I think even the very elite, um, very, very rich U.S. private institutions, they do have quite substantial scholarship uh, schemes where many, many people have, uh, you know, their fees waived, their, their, their expenses covered through, through lots and lots of, of scholarships. But I think the message from rankings is, is that actually there are some wonderful universities that are very, very open access. The, the, the Dutch system, for example, in the Netherlands, they more or less have a, an open entry system to their universities. If you graduate from, from high school, you get a chance to go to university. Uh, it's, and it's a very open um, system. And what you do find is more attrition, there's probably higher dropout rates, but you, you have open access. And these Dutch universities in particular are doing remarkably well in the world rankings. 
So absolutely not. I think widening access means that you get the best range of talent, the best range of students, and that can only be good for the university and, and it's, it's, it's fantastic for the nation. Absolutely agree. We need as many of those brilliant young minds into our universities as possible and we need the, the funding from government to make sure that they can thrive and go on to be productive members of the economy and of society. Yeah. So one last question is, what would you say for, for a layperson, for someone who isn't or fair necessarily with all the complexities to do with working out the rankings, what would you say is the most important thing an academic staff member or a potential student or an existing student should keep in mind when looking at all of the various university rankings out there and working out which ones to take seriously or to use in their decision making about where they may wish to work or study? I think probably the first first key point I'd say is that obviously some are much more rigorous and, and, and sensible than others. There are some kind of crazy rankings out there, you know, looking at all sorts of weird and wonderful elements. So the most important thing is look at the methodology understand what you're seeing so if someone says the university of harvard is the world's number one university have a look at what criteria they've used and in a lot of cases actually students will look at a ranking based on this is where i want to study but actually they may not be telling you much so there is a lot of uh, a focus on do what you can to look at the methodology section and actually a, a really good point with rankings is that a ranking that is transparent with how it puts the data together, it's transparent with what information it's using and why it's using certain data points and why it's not using other data points. That's inherently going to be a, a better proposition for you because at least there's an honesty about saying, well, we're looking at this for this reason, we're looking at that for this reason. These are the limitations of what we're doing, these are the strengths of what we're doing. So always analyze the methodology. Always recognize that a, a single composite score, you know, Harvard University gets 100 points, that could hide a multitude of weaknesses and it could also disguise a multitude of strengths. So I would always say the overall score is useful for the, the big picture, the kind of big prestige judgment. Is this university world renowned? Is it, is it good across the board? But look at individual course level data, drill down beneath the overall rankings information, chip away at the overall scores and, and drill beneath it all. And also, the, probably the final thing, never take a ranking at face value. Always, always understand how it's been put together because there are a million different ways of slicing and dicing the data. So transparency around the methodology and understanding the elements that are involved in reaching the overall conclusion, I think, is very, very important. So rankings are, to some extent, subjective and not always transparent. But if we can find ones that have a transparency about their methodology and that we're able to kind of see how it was put together, those are the ones that we can rely on more. For me, it's really almost the more rankings, the better, because you can extract what you are interested in as an individual. So one of the things we're doing at Times Higher Education is we try and make our website very interactive. So, you know, we have a list of the top 800 universities in the world. We say that this is about, you know, it's really about research excellence, but we do have an area of teaching. So you can actually re-rank the universities based on their teaching scores. You can look at their international scores. You can go on a profile and find out how many students they've got. You can look at how many international students they have. You can look at the gender ratios. So the idea really is the ranking should be the starting point of a much more detailed journey. If you're interested in what it's going to be like to study there, you know, the ranking starts you there, you get some data, and then you need to go off and do your own research. If the ranking is about 
an academic wanting to understand where research excellence lies, you know, importantly, they'll go to subject level information and, and, and drill down beneath that. If you're a government, you probably are interested in the headline stuff because it's about the big picture and global competitiveness. So each user will have different needs and the rankings that are best are the ones I think that recognize that and allow the user to manipulate the data, to unpick the overall scores to filter and, and search and select and shortlist in a way that some others don't. So I think that's probably the key. Get what you want. Allow the user to dictate what they get from the, from the data. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I think I've covered all the questions that I wanted to ask. Was there anything that you wanted to add or that you didn't have a chance to say that you think is important for people to know about? I think for me, I just wanted to say we are committed to engaging and continuing to work with African universities. We're actually back in Johannesburg later this year. We have our BRICS and Emerging Economies University Summit, very first two days of December. So we're coming back to South Africa. We want to engage. Engage. We want to work with universities to make sure our rankings are accountable and to make sure we are responsive to university needs. So we are constantly listening and learning, keep delivering information that the universities want. We hope today's podcast helped to shed some light on university rankings. One point of optimism that I'll be taking away from our discussion is the possibility of future ranking systems, including more social indicators. That would be great progress for universities in the global south. I'm Theodore Smith. I'm studying civil engineering. This is my second time on the podcast. I'd say it, well, it does give a, um, when you're making a decision, you, it will affect into like, okay, fine, wait, this, this is the best university in the country or not, or, or in the world for that matter, globally. One would be skeptical in a sense that on what criteria is this ranking based on? Cause I mean, in academics, sure, you provide the best doctors, the best, engineers the best whatever it can be but however to a student how is the student's experience i mean that ranking could just be purely based on academics but in terms of what you do for the students that plays a big role also two different things from what i heard from a friend or what i actually see for example the first years when they come and write an exam on the global record the the university might have a very high ranking but to a student who example in this case who went to write an exam they went to go right in a, like an environment that isn't exactly top class like the university is stated to be. Example, like you write in a car park. The student would still be competing with the environment and still need to contribute on a paper. Does that fit with a top university? Not exactly. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at WITS. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Limbenyane. Thanks to Phil Batty, Samir and Theodore for their time. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.